You're listening to Hardwired with Jeff Wickwire. Here's what's coming up in today's edition. He allowed himself to be crucified by men so that he could submit to God's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, how did he end his prayer? Not my will, but thine be done. That's the statement of a meek person. As was Jesus, so shall we be as the fruit of meekness is cultivated within the believer. Do you resist God? Do you get mad at God? Is there something God's trying to do in your life and you're kicking against him? Try putting on meekness. When you hear the word meek, what does it mean to you? Oftentimes there's a misconception that it's a negative word, likening it to things such as weakness. Today, Pastor Jeff shows us that as Christians, if we want to see change in our lives, we need to soften our hearts and strive for meekness. As Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The more that you strive to love others in the name of Jesus and leave your pride behind, the closer you'll grow to God's holiness. Well, let's join Pastor Jeff in the book of Galatians chapter 5 as he continues his message, The Great Evidential Fruits of the Spirit. Have you ever noticed every time Hollywood does a preacher, if he's not a killer or a serial rapist or a lunatic, he's nerdy and wimpy and sort of effeminate and nice and totally unimpressive and non-inspirational and non-charismatic and boring. I hate Hollywood's picture of preachers. Well, I could stay on that all night, but I'll be nice and move on. Look what the Bible says. The wicked detest the upright. So don't be amazed if somebody hates your guts because you're a believer. It's come to that, folks. We're there in America now. I hope you know that. That if you really come out and live for Jesus in front of everyone, you're going to be persecuted and really and truly sometimes hated. What are you going to do with that? Pick up your marbles and go home? No. You're going to shine and say, you know, I'm so sorry you're offended by the Jesus in me. Really. But again, I'm really not. Sorry. Because I want to tell you, when I came to him, he changed my life. I love you in the Lord. I do, but I'm going to tell you the truth. And I'm not going to apologize for telling you the truth. The fruit of the Spirit produces both kindness and goodness in the character of the child of God. What a blessing to have these glorious attributes of the living God growing within our souls. Amen? Now, we've looked at the first three fruits of the Spirit, which are emotional. And then we looked at the second three, which are evidential. Now I want to come to the final three fruits of the Spirit, which are elemental. Now, the elemental fruits of the Spirit are the ultimate basics of the Christian life. They're the bare essentials of vital Christianity. The first of those fruits is faith. Without faith, you can't please God. And faith is the beginning of every walk with God and every encounter with God. Without faith, you will never have an encounter with God. So our whole Christian life, being born again, being saved, coming to him, began with faith. Amen? Faith. Now, faith can be either the act or the attitude of believing trust. It can also be the quality of faithfulness, dependability, and loyalty. Now, catch that. The quality of being faithful and dependable 
and loyal. So when we see faith in this list of nine fruits of the Spirit, it's not necessarily talking about faith that moves a mountain. It's more than likely talking about being faithful, loyal, dependable as God is. Because the other fruits are moral, just like that. So sometimes faith is simply the ordinary everyday faith that we all exercise in a thousand different ways in daily normal life. When you got into your car tonight to come to church, you turn that key in full faith, it would start. And when it doesn't start sometimes, your faith is offended, right? You want to know, oh no, what is it? Is it the stupid battery? Is it the car maker? Did Chevy do this or the battery do this? Because your faith said it's going to start. Now you don't know how it works. If I told you go in and take that engine apart and put it back together, you would say, I have no clue how to do that. I just know that I believe when I turn that key, it's going to happen. I operate in faith. When you walked into this church, you had faith there was going to be a chair for you. You had faith that I was going to be here. You had faith that you would hear something about Galatians. You didn't even think about it. You believed it was going to happen. We move in normal faith all the time. As the old saying goes, how does a cow eat green grass that, that produces white milk and turns to yellow butter? I don't know. I just know I expect it to be there when I want butter on my toast. Faith. We have faith without even thinking about it, that the world's going to keep on spinning the way that it should, the way God made it, so that we don't all fly off into space, lost in space. We operate in faith all the time. But here's the danger. The danger is that faith can be misplaced, and it's misplaced all the time. We might place our faith in a false God or in a person or a place or a thing, and we look to that person or that place or that thing or that false doctrine to do something for us that only Christ can do. I mean, this is what the cults are all about. They want you to have misplaced faith. They want you to put the faith that you would usually turn towards God and his son, Jesus Christ, and put it in something else to distract you, hopefully until you die lost. The object of our faith is everything. Misplaced faith can result in disaster, even in the loss of your soul. Jesus said, some people put faith in money and things and, and materialism. And he said, but, but guess what? What will it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Because you can put your faith in money, but you can't take that with you. When you die, you go into eternity just like you came with nothing but your skin on you. And it's gone. You don't take any money, any riches, any necklaces, any cars, any golf clubs, anything. It all stays here. When faith is placed in the finished work of Christ, that is when faith becomes saving faith, securing faith, sanctifying faith. The minute I turn my faith to the right object and say, Jesus, forgive me, immediately I am saved. For if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be that very microsecond saved. So, faith rightly placed becomes saving faith. And that's the only time that it does. In Galatians, faith must probably be seen as the, the quality of faithfulness and trustworthiness because the other fruits of the Spirit are all moral qualities. God is revealed in Scripture as being utterly 
trustworthy, absolutely dependable. God can never break his word. Do you know that? God cannot break his word. And once again, nobody was and is more trustworthy than Jesus Christ. When the disciples thought they were going to perish in the storm at sea, what did trustworthy Jesus, faithful Jesus do? Stood up and talked to the storm and stopped it and saved them. Why? Because he's trustworthy. See, some of you have needs tonight and the devil hits your mind and says, what are you going to do about that bill? What are you going to do about that kid that's gone nuts? What are you going to do about this or that in your life and tries to sow doubt? But you need to rise up and say, guess what? Living inside of me is the trustworthy, loyal, faithful Jesus. And he cannot go back on his word. He can't do it. In another event, when they were straining at rowing, like the way you feel some days, straining at rowing against a wind that was blowing against them in the middle of the sea, did Jesus leave them? It says he saw them from the mountaintop. And what did he do? He said, I got to get to them because they're not getting anywhere. They're straining at rowing, but they're not getting anywhere. They're trying to get somewhere. They're trying to get where I've told them to go, but they can't get there because they're going in their own strength. So he walked down and walked on the water to get to them. He walked on top of the very thing that was vexing them. And they said, oh, it's a ghost. It is I, be not afraid. And it says, as soon as he got in the boat, it became a motorboat, and they were at the other side of the sea. Things change when Jesus gets in your boat. They really do. Things change when you're in a problem and say, Lord, I don't know what to do, but get in my boat. He appeared to them walking on the water because he is faithful. So do we become faithful as the fruit of the Spirit grows within. That's a fruit of the Spirit. As he is dependable, faithful, and loyal, Christians ought to be growing the same fruit dependable, faithful, loyal. You can depend on my word. I'm going to do it. Why? Because I got the fruit of the spirit. I'm dependable. I'm faithful and I'm loyal. I'm not a con. I'm not a cheat. I'm not a liar. I'm not a deceiver. I'm faithful, loyal, and dependable because I'm following one who is, and he's rubbing off on me. Now the next elemental fruit of the spirit is meekness. Now I know what you think when I say meek. You say, well, pastor Jeff is really meek. Some of you would think, really, he's weak? No. Meekness, you know what it means? Strength held back. I could, but I won't. Meekness is not weakness. Now, here's another definition of meekness. Meekness is the attitude of heart that accepts the Lord's dealings with us as good and perfect and acceptable, the meek person does not resist God. You know why it says Moses was the meekest man on the face of the earth? Because he did not grumble against God like the Israelites did. See, they were the antithesis of meek. All they ever did was grumble, murmur, and complain. That's the opposite of meek. Meekness says, I trust you. I receive your dealings in my life, and I'm not going to resist you. The Lord Jesus described himself as meek. He said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am what? Meek and lowly in heart. He said, I'm meek. In his earthly life, Jesus possessed the power to create a galaxy. He said, when they were arresting him, I could call on 12 legions of angels and they would come right now and whisk me out of here, but I will not do it. 
Why? Because I'm meek. Meekness means I'm going to do the will of God, not my own will, and I'm not going to resist him for it. He allowed himself to be abused by people he made. He allowed himself to be crucified by men so that he could submit to God's will. In the Garden of Gethsemane, how did he end his prayer? Not my will, but thine be done. That's the statement of a meek person. As was Jesus, so shall we be as the fruit of meekness is cultivated within the believer. Do you resist God? Do you get mad at God? Is there something God's trying to do in your life and you're kicking against him? Try putting on meekness. Because as we walk in the Spirit, we should be growing. The Holy Spirit should be producing this attitude, this fruit, where we say, not my will, but thine be done. And whatever your will is, Lord, I'm not going to grumble against it. As Jesus acquiesced to the will of God in all things, so will the child of God walking in meekness. Now, the final fruit of the Spirit in Paul's list is temperance. It comes from a Greek word meaning strength. It is sometimes translated self-control, but that's really not the best translation because even lost people can exercise self-control or discipline. Any athlete, I mean, we hear these football players all the time on the football field who are very disciplined physically, but they cuss like sailors when you give them a microphone. They have no control over their own spirits, but they're disciplined partially. But as a fruit of the Spirit, actually, Temperance means more than self-control or discipline like an athlete might practice. It means self-control in all things, particularly in the realm of your passions, your emotions, your what is taking place on the inside of you. Again, think of the self-control exercised by Jesus. It's amazing. I mean, you got to think, folks, it was God standing there allowing men to hit him, pluck his beard out, shove a crown of thorns on his head, and nail him to a tree. It was God. He could have said, you talk about being able to say, burn, baby, burn. He could have said right then, and they would have all been gone. But no, no, the meekness of the Lord, it was God's will, and the temperance of the Lord, his ability to be totally in charge of his emotions as he stood there in kangaroo court being accused of things he did not do, his remarkable self-control at his trial, though he was utterly innocent, so much so that Herod marveled at his silence. He defended not himself. On the cross, consider the dignity with which he submitted to the soldiers who drove the nails through his hands and feet. Think about it. We don't read of any crying out. We don't read of any complaining. We don't read of any, God, how could you let this happen to me? None of that. He had temperance. He was in charge of his passions, in charge of his emotions. Not once did Jesus lose his sublime self-control. Even hanging on a cross of torture, he calmly and compassionately led a dying criminal next to him to eternal life. The last thing I'm going to be thinking about hanging on a cross is leading somebody to Jesus. But he did, totally in charge. Folks, the good news is this is a fruit of the Spirit. This is not something you've got to make happen inside of you. This is something God produces in you. The child of God can also display beautiful self-control as this ninth fruit of the Spirit grows within. 
What an incredible person it is indeed in whom the fruits of the Spirit have been developed like this. Here's what they're going to be like. Such a person is loving, full of joy, calm, and peaceful, come what may. They are patiently submissive to God. They are gentle. They are good, completely dependable, strong, and in control of their passions. Sound like somebody you'd like to be around? Amen. Compare that to Paul's list in 2 Timothy 3 as he describes the character of end-time man. Totally opposite. Paul says against such things there's no law. The law could never produce such fruit as this. Now he's going to go on and tell us as we come towards the close how such fruit is cultivated. I don't know about you, but I read about this and I want it. Do you want it? I said, do you want this fruit? Wouldn't life be easier with this fruit? Less stressful? If you're not always flying off the handle, always emotional, always all stressed out, full of doubt, if the, the fruit of the Spirit is going to get you off your blood pressure medicine. Now look, he says, you want to know how to get this fruit? Verse 24 tells us, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Now listen very carefully. What have we learned in this letter? That there is a battle between the flesh and the spirit, between the old man and the new man, that you can either walk in the spirit or walk in the flesh, that the flesh is at war with God, the enemy of God, against God, and there's no good thing in the flesh, in the Adamic nature that we inherited from Adam. So what have we learned in Galatians over and over again? That God's only answer to the flesh is the cross. You can't debate with it. You can't make a truce with it. You must crucify it. If you're going to bear fruit, this is what you've got to do. Man might kill himself. You can kill yourself, but guess what? You can't crucify yourself. When it comes to crucifixion, somebody else has got to get those nails and that hammer and do it for you. You might be able to kill yourself with a gun or poison or whatever. You cannot crucify yourself. What is the message of Galatians? God did it for us. By identifying us with Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection, God has put us to death. I want you to say that with me. I'm dead. Or as East Texas, I'm dead. I've got a friend, my producer. He makes two syllables out of everything with one. My name is J.F. And he would say, I'm dead. But dead or dead, you're dead. You say, well, pastor, really? Come on now, really? Yes. The song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Oh, yes, you were there. How were you there? He killed your flesh on that cross. He crucified your flesh on that cross. When we, when we baptize people, we say this, buried with him by baptism into his death and raised to walk in the newness of life. The picture is you left your old man in the water. And you came up to walk in the newness of life because the old man is dead. Reckon yourselves indeed to be crucified with Christ. Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. So God put us to death and then he buried us and raised us up again in newness of life. That's not pretty theology. That's actually true. 
Having been crucified, we're to now walk in the Spirit. We're to now walk in the Spirit. He that is a child of God walks in the Spirit. Look what it says in verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, in other words, if the Spirit is, is inside of us, then let's walk in the Spirit. If He's living inside of us, then let's walk in the Spirit. We're to walk in the Spirit, not in the power of the flesh that was crucified. How do we walk in the Spirit? Here it is, the same way Jesus did, by making ourselves always available to him as he made himself available to the Father. We walk in the Spirit by living a yielded life. You know, my mind as a preacher, I search for words and I'm always thinking, how can I say it best? We walk in the Spirit by living a yielded life. I can't put it any other way. Yielded. So that when the flesh says, do this, you say, no, I yield to the Lord right here. And I'm going to walk in the spirit because I don't have to any longer obey the promptings of my flesh because my flesh was crucified. Reckon ye yourselves to be dead indeed. Crucified with Christ. Let me ask you a question. Were you crucified with Christ? Is your old man dead? And you have a new man, eh? a new man, amen? Now, living inside of you. So, and the Spirit of God is living inside of us to help us do that very thing. Now, look what Jesus said, abide in me. It's not complicated. And I in you, as the branch cannot bear what? The nine fruits of the Spirit. You cannot bear the fruits of the Spirit unless you abide in the vine. People can be saved for 50 years and never get this. They remain carnal Christians their whole life. They never bear the fruits of the Spirit because they don't see that it just it's a matter of me just hanging on to the vine. I mean, we all know, you go out in your backyard and break a branch off of a tree, it'll look fine for a while. It'll look just like all the other branches. Leaves, bark, it'll be, it'll be flexible, but let it sit there a couple of weeks. All the leaves die. It gets brittle. The bark falls off. Why? Because it's no longer abiding in the vine. We've got to abide every day. You get, you, every day you get up and you get with God, you get into that word, and you go into prayer, and you set yourself in that vine daily. And then throughout the day, you simply obey the promptings of the Spirit instead of the promptings of the flesh. And as you abide in the vine, love joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, kindness, faith, grow. You don't have to do anything. Just hang there. Jesus said, I'm the vine and you are branches. Now read the next part with me, would you? Good and loud. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. The nine fruits. For without me, you can do nothing as it relates to bearing fruit. That's what he means. You can change a tire, but you can't bear fruit apart from him. As crucified people who walk in the Spirit, he closes out the chapter. As crucified people who are to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh, abiding in the vine daily, what are we to do? Let's read it. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. 
in your faith journey, do you focus on living in the Spirit? We are constantly bombarded with reasons to accept the wisdom of the world. Do you let it affect your connection with God? Today we learn from Pastor Jeff that if you want to maintain your closeness with the Lord, you need to stay true to the fruits of the Spirit. They're not just some list of ways to be a nice person. Be serious about the fruits of the Spirit and be a powerful difference maker for God's kingdom. We'd love for you to have additional resources. Here's Diane with more. Are you interested in partnering with us here at Hardwired? We'd love for you to come alongside us in supporting this ministry. All you have to do is text 817-484-4767 and enter the word GIVE to donate. That number once more is 817-484-4767 and text GIVE. Thanks so much for prayerfully considering this today. And thanks for listening. Daniel has more to tell you about what's ahead on the upcoming edition. Next time with Pastor Jeff, we learn how important it is to avoid backsliding in our faith. As a follower of Jesus, you are called to remain pure in the divine promises of God and turn away from the pitfalls of sin. No matter how small or harmless it may seem, the lies of the world will always seek to destroy your life as you know it. Remain focused on the things above and set your sights on eternity. God wants nothing more than to dwell with you in His kingdom. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Hardwired with Jeff Wickwire. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting hardwired.org. Join us next time to continue our study in the book of Galatians right here on Hardwired.